Greetings, peasants. I mean, hello, noble adventurers and devious dungeon masters. This is Tim, and welcome back to the Knights and Nerds podcast, and I want to say thank you very much for listening to this. This episode is kind of a one-of-a-kind so far, talking about chase scenes and chase mechanics. Uh, I've been wanting to make this episode, I've been thinking about the rules about chases uh, ever since I borrowed some chase mechanics from the Angry GM website for episode 15, entitled Umber Hulk Smash. If you haven't listened to that one, I won't give anything away, but it involves an Umber Hulk and all of the characters in the party running from it. And I liked how that episode went, although there are a few things that I would change in hindsight. Isn't that always the way it goes? And it got me thinking that uh, maybe we need to try to come up with a more cohesive, well-defined, but easy-to-follow set of rules for uh, a chase that also involve some importance, some emphasis on player choices. The Angry GM article really emphasizes player choice as the main, or one of the main, components of that scene. Really, a lot of articles that on that site, a lot of articles on that site, really just go back to, you know, how are we incorporating the importance of player choice into this particular part of the game? And that's really the crux of a role-playing game. Having players' choices actually matter and have meaningful impact on the outcome of the campaign, or in this case, the outcome of a hopefully exciting chase encounter. Also, a friend of the podcast on Instagram, DM Grumpy Dwarf, did some chase mechanics, which I haven't play tested yet, but hopefully I'll be able to soon. Um, check out his Instagram, DM Grumpy Dwarf. He's on Instagram and Facebook. And he had uh, put out a call, you know, what, hey everyone, what do you want to see next sort of thing. And I said, I want to see better chase mechanics. Because the chase mechanics in the Dungeon Master's Guide, I think, are a bit lackluster. And he came up with his set, a few different scenarios uh, for different uh, chase styles. And I thought it would be appropriate for me to try my hand at this sort of thing, since I'm the one who challenged him, it seems like I should at least reciprocate and try to make my own set of rules. But first off, I guess we should ask the question, why do we need to talk about these mechanics and rules about a chase scene? And I think the answer is because what we get in the Dungeon Master's Guide, pages 252 to 255, are really, like I said, not adequate. They're pretty suboptimal and they don't have much to do with player choice now what i want to do first is look at the good and bad of these mechanics in the in the dmg and see if we can't create a better system that more readily accommodates the consequences of players making choices now what a chase ought to be i think is a tense situation where a player has to carefully choose what resources to use in order to succeed success being either catching their quarry or escaping those who are chasing them. Now they have to choose that versus the potential drawbacks of failure should their attempts fail. We see these sorts of choices more often in combat where players have to make decisions to things like, do they help their fallen allies or attack their enemies? And what's the consequences of those choices? Should I heal my fallen companion knowing that I'm going to be attacked? Or should I attack this enemy and maybe try to kill it this turn. And what will happen if I attack and don't kill it this turn? That sort of thing. 
Now, I think the main hallmark of 5th edition rules is that they are not too intrusive and can be easily modified by dungeon masters according to what sort of game they want to run. And I think that's what they were trying to achieve with the rules for the chases in as they're presented in the DMG. It's a rough outline. But instead of being a set of easily modified rules, what we have is sort of a a system that relies only mainly on die rolling and doesn't really put that much of an emphasis on player options or player choices during the chase. I think it maybe it assumes that the dungeon master is going to bring something to the table, but it doesn't really make that explicit. So I'm just going to read through some of the paragraphs here in in the dungeon master's guide about how to run a chase. And up front, I think I'll say I think you could run this chase. It would probably be okay. I think it would be too much work on the dungeon master though, and we'll get to that in a sec. So here we go. Strict application of the movement rules can turn a potentially exciting chase into a dull, predictable affair. Faster creatures can always catch up to slower ones, while creatures with the same speed never close the distance between each other. So, yes, strict application of the movement rules would be boring, but is it necessarily true that creatures with the same speed never close the distance between each other? Uh, What if one creature is proficient in athletics and the other is not? Anyways, a chase requires a quarry and at least one pursuer. Any participants not already in initiative order must roll initiative. As in combat, each participant in the chase can take one action and move on its turn. The chase ends when one side drops out or the quarry escapes. When a chase begins, determine the starting distance between the quarry and the pursuers. Track the distance between them and designate the pursuer closest to the quarry as the lead. The lead pursuer might change from round to round. Now, I just want to note here that they tell you to designate someone as the lead pursuer, but don't indicate why this is necessary or important. Does the lead pursuer get some kind of bonus or added responsibility? Doesn't seem like it. Also, what we're being told to do here is adding and subtracting movement for however many participants each round and in initiative order. So thanks for the math homework, but uh, uh, would it be exciting for, let's say, four player characters to roll initiative and then gain and lose ground on their quarry each turn? That's essentially what would happen. You would subtract the distance between the PCs and their quarry, or vice versa, and then increase the distance again on the quarry's turn. Now, if we don't want the chase to become a dull affair, then I think we can come up with something better than this. Seems like a lot of work unnecessarily. Or at least, I don't think tracking the individual movement distances and speeds of however many characters are in your party. What if you have five or six players in your group, plus a friendly NPC who's also in the chase? Are you going to track seven creatures' movements round over round, and then their pursuer or quarry. No, that's way too much work. On to the next paragraph. Running the chase. Participants are strongly motivated to use the dash action every round. Pursuers who stop to cast spells and make attacks run the risk of losing their quarry, and a quarry that does so is likely to be caught. Now, this does make sense in a narrative context, but there's no elaboration provided on how to enforce this, so presumably it would be up to the DM to apply the appropriate penalties. 
Reading between the lines, though, I think what they're saying is that someone who doesn't dash doesn't move as far, and so the quarry gets further ahead or the pursuer gets closer. And also reading between the lines, what we have here is not necessarily a special type of scenario that has its own rules. It seems like we're just getting combat rules, but all the combatants are running. So is this a chase? Maybe. Does it resemble combat that's just kind of happening in a line? Sort of. On to the next paragraph. During the chase, a participant can freely use the dash action a number of times equal to 3 plus its constitution modifier. Each additional dash action it takes during the chase requires the creature, excuse me, requires the creature to succeed on a DC 10 constitution check at the end of its turn or gain one level of exhaustion. A participant drops out of the chase if its exhaustion level reaches 5 since its speed becomes 0. A creature can remove the levels of exhaustion it gained during the chase by finishing a short or long rest. So here we have something of a restriction on how many times a creature can dash, and it's a minimum of eight times. And that's eight times if your constitution modifier is zero. So likely that's nine or ten times that you can dash for most player characters. And if we assume the player is going to pass at least two of their constitution saving throws, then you're looking at probably 10 to 12 times a creature can dash in a chase. So that's really not much of a restriction, but it's at least incorporating something that's important that we'll hopefully be using in the set of rules that we'll talk about in a few minutes, which is consequence. Consequence for choice that the player makes. Like I said earlier, a chase, like other facets of the game, ought to hinge on the choices that the players make, risk versus reward, consequences of choices. This allowance of dashes doesn't really place any meaningful restrictions on the players, and therefore it's not really an important choice if you decide to dash 10 times in a row or not. Chances are you're going to succeed 8 or 10 times or more. Now this would really only be an important choice if your chase is going to last like 20 rounds. That's too long of a chase. What is this, the born identity? They're not running a marathon. Ugh. Okay, next paragraph. Spells and attacks. A chase participant can make attacks and cast spells against other creatures within range. Apply the normal rules for cover, terrain, and so on to the attacks and spells. Chase participants can't normally make opportunity attacks against each other since they are all assumed to be moving in the same direction at the same time. However, participants can still be the targets of opportunity attacks from creatures not participating in the chase. So these paragraphs, I mean, if anything, just force us to ask ourselves, in what way is a chase different from combat? Based on this outline of attacking and spellcasting, you would think that there really isn't a difference. Uh, the goal for a chase seems to either catch your quarry, and I would think probably because you need something from the quarry other than just for your quarry to be dead, or to escape. Neither of these goals really need to involve combat at all. Further, if the chase is happening in a crowded city area, what are the chances that a PC is going to want to try to, let's say, shoot an arrow or fire off an Eldritch Blast through a crowded market, or try to hit a fleeing quarry when the consequence of missing that attack probably means hitting an innocent bystander? Or if you're player characters are chasing a creature through a dense wilderness, will they be able to hit their mark if the target is continually hidden behind a wall of trees and brush? Probably not. So this sort of 
aspect of the chase, since it's difficult, should be disclosed to your players early on and how difficult this will be. This isn't to say that certain attacks or spells would have no utility during a chase, but we'll, we'll get to that in a bit. A chase ends when one side or the other stops, when a quarry escapes, or when the pursuers are close enough to their quarry to catch it. If neither side gives up the chase, the quarry makes a dexterity stealth check at the end of each round, after every participant in the chase has taken its turn. The result is compared to the passive wisdom perception scores of the pursuers. If the quarry consists of multiple creatures, they must all make the check. If the quarry is never out of the lead pursuer's sight, the check fails automatically. Otherwise, if the result of the quarry's check is greater than the highest passive score, that quarry escapes. If not, the chase continues for another round. Okay. A few problems with this. We've already established that the pursuers are unlikely to give up the chase since they have a generous, almost unlimited dash allowance. Second, conceivably, the quarry could make a stealth check at the end of the first round of the chase as long as they're not in line of sight of the lead pursuer, which is a bit anticlimactic. I suppose it is a viable escape strategy, however it seems more fitting that quarry would only do this after a few rounds of not being able to lose their pursuers, realizing that, okay, I can't seem to outrun them, maybe I can hide. So this is maybe a decent option for a quarry to escape, but attempting to do so in the earlier rounds of the chase should be more difficult. Also, I'm not sure why the rules state that the stealth check needs to be higher than the passive perception of those pursuing it. Aren't the pursuers actively looking for this target? Wouldn't it just be a regular perception check to find the quarry? Passive perception, as I understand, is when a creature isn't looking for something but notices it anyways because its passive perception is higher than the stealth check of the creature that is trying to hide. So wouldn't a pursuer actively be looking and if a creature tries to hide, like they know that the creature's around there somewhere, they know that their quarry has went down this alley. They're actively looking for it anyways. And there's some stuff about the quarry gaining advantage or disadvantage, which is not really all that relevant. So we're just going to skip on to the next part. Chase complications. Let's read, through, uh, let's read through a few of these chase complications, shall we? A large obstacle, such as a horse or a cart, blocks your way. Make a D DC 15 dexterity acrobatics check to get past the obstacle. On a failed check, the obstacle counts as 10 feet of difficult terrain. Or... A crowd blocks your way. Make a DC 10 strength, athletics, or dexterity acrobatics check, your choice, to make your way through the crowd unimpeded. On a failed check, the crowd counts as 10 feet of difficult terrain. Or, a large stained glass window or similar barrier blocks your path. Make a DC 10 strength saving throw or smash through the barrier and keep going. On a failed save, you bounce off the barrier and fall prone. Or, a maze of barrels Crates or similar obstacles stand in your way. Make a DC 10 dexterity acrobatics or intelligence check to navigate the maze. On a failed check, the maze counts as 10 feet of difficult terrain. You get the idea. So these are the complications, but none of these actually involve the players making choices on how to approach the chase in an intelligent way. All of these are simply make a saving throw or you fall behind. Much like a trap that's just make a saving throw or take damage. These complications aren't complications, they're just delays. Plus, they're making you do more tedious math homework difficult terrain. <laughs> All right, so now that I've done my griping about the Dungeon Master Guide chase rules, here's what I want to accomplish with my attempt, which may be 
clumsy. My attempt at a revised set of rules for a chase scene. I want to make it relatively easy to run a chase scene as a dungeon master. And anything really that doesn't involve tracking the distance of every individual party member and person chasing them is going to be easier. So one, make it relatively easy to run the chase scene as a dungeon master. Two, not to gloss over the strengths and weaknesses of the individual player characters in your game. And three, have guidelines that are easy to follow, but also allow for some flexibility and incorporate player choices. Now, the chase in episode 15 worked fairly well. I was really only tracking how many turns away the players were and had them trying to accomplish things that would allow them to speed up or to slow down the Umberhawk that was chasing them. Now, it did work well, so why am I trying to craft my own rules? Um, because the way that I ran it, and maybe there would be a different way to run those angry GM rules, but the way that I ran it equalized strengths and weaknesses of the characters. That is, they ignored certain character traits. Mainly what I was thinking about is that at the time, Spruce Lee, the wood elf monk, his base speed was 40 feet, while Gillies, the gnome, is 25. The rules that I used just assumed that everyone was moving at about the same speed, which was good for Gilly, not necessarily great for Spruce. And it would have been even more of a detriment if they were actually chasing someone and trying to catch someone and Spruce's greater speed was ignored. Also, once he reaches level 6, his base speed will be 50 feet. So if we were doing the same chase from episode 15 and his base speed was twice that of the gnomes and I was just treating them the same way, I feel like that's, that's glossing over a bit too much. I do think the rules that we used for the chase in episode 14 were good and I'm hoping to build on parts of them. And one main way being that a character's movement speed should be taken into account. It is a chase after all, so yes, speed should be a large factor. And I'm really not a fan, as you can already have guessed, of the Dungeon Master Guide chase rules that would have you writing out the individual distances of all participants in a chase. Too much work, too cumbersome, too time-consuming. And I think better guidelines mean a bit more of a structure. Not too much, but enough to know exactly when the chase should end. The DMG chase rules leave the end of a chase very vague. Either someone gives up, can't continue due to exhaustion, or the quarry escapes. So for this, I wanted to borrow some rules from 4th edition. <gasps> yes, that's right, 4th edition. So that the structure of a chase somewhat resembles that of a skill challenge. Now, a skill challenge from 4th edition, if you didn't play it, uh, Matthew Colville actually has a neat video on skill challenges. Skill challenge is a way to approach a non-combat encounter that involves succeeding or failing at different skill checks, and certain players will try to bring forward narrative suggestions to use a certain skill to solve the problem in front of them. And a skill challenge is deemed to have passed or failed depending on the difficulty level that the dungeon master sets setting a number of successes versus failures. So, for example, there's a chase scene uh, skill challenge in the 4th edition Dungeon Master Guide on page 78 that says, this chase scene, you need 12 successes 
before you accrue six failures. If you fail six times before you succeed 12 times as a party, then you fail. Now, what this set of rules does well is that it totally disregards individual movement speeds, much like the angry GM rules. It only tallies successes versus failures, which is a feature that I want to use. But I also want to tweak it so that we're not ignoring the fact that the monk moves twice as fast as the gnome. What the 4th edition rules fail to do, though, is to, again, incorporate any component of choice. It's really simply rolling a d20 until you either win or lose, and that's not super exciting. So let's set up a chase using a new set of rules. First, tell your players that you're entering a chase. It's not combat. Tell them that they need to look at their skills and abilities to act and react to what is happening around them, and that you're going to describe scenes and that the things you're describing are relevant. You can also explain to them the rules for this chase, is that you can use your movement to dash. We'll get to dashing in a minute. But taking any standard action to cast a spell to make an attack will cause you to accrue a failure. And what you're trying to do is achieve a certain number of successes or to cause your enemy or opponent, whether they're your quarry or the ones pursuing you, to accrue a certain number of failures. So step one, determine the length of your chase. Not in distance, not in feet, but in turns or scenes. In episode 15, Again, to reference back to the Umber Hulk chase, the players encountered a number of obstacles and had the opportunities to sprint. And these were like individual sequential challenges. And if I recall correctly, there were maybe seven or eight, maybe one or two more uh, little scenes in that chase. And that chase ended at a jump. So determine how many of these scenes there are going to be. And each scene should represent a choice Maybe not each scene, but some scenes should represent a choice for your players to make. You may want to sprinkle in one or two scenes that are just obstacles. After all, running full tilt through crowded city streets, you're bound to collide with someone. But there should be an emphasis in as many of these scenes as you can, in most of these instances, on the PCs making a choice that affects whether they succeed or fail. Now, note, you do, you do not need to determine the starting distance between the quarry and the pursuers. You can just say that they're far enough apart that they're not going to be in melee range. I would assume that the ones fleeing are always going to have a bit of an edge on those who are chasing them. So yeah, that's step one. Determine how many scenes are in your chase, and that is how long the chase is. Step two, determine the victory or loss conditions. How many of these scenes, and again a scene is an obstacle or an opportunity, or sometimes both, how many scenes will the players need to succeed at in order for them to either catch up to or escape from their opponents? So we can approach this in, I think, one of two ways. The loss condition for someone to lose their quarry or get caught by their pursuers can be phrased as which side or creature reaches X number of failures or delays or setbacks, whatever you want to call them, first. Now, this threshold of failures will not just focus on who is delaying who more, but will also be offset by successes. So there's, there needs to be a strong element of narrative flexibility here. 
And what I mean by that is you're describing the scenes and you let the players act based on what you described. Again, going back to the Umber Hulk chase, I was fairly upfront with the group that each scene would be an obstacle or an opportunity, and most of the time they were able to pick up on what their options were. But there were a few instances in which they overlooked some options, and that's okay. So if we're setting the loss condition for a failure threshold, loss condition might be if a certain creature, if a creature suffers a net total of, let's say, five delays or failures, then they're out of the chase. So if your group of player characters are chasing an opponent through a city, then, you know, one or two player characters might drop out of the chase before it's done. Or if they're the quarry, they that means they might get caught. Now, I did say a net total of a certain number of failures. We'll talk about net total in a minute. The second option to approach the victory or loss conditions, again, this is maybe step Maybe it's step 1B, uh, is you've, so you've decided how many scenes are in your chase, and you just run all the scenes to the very end and tally successes versus failures at the end. Now, the benefit of this is that this might keep the players guessing as to whether or not they've been successful, and they wouldn't really know until the very, very end of the chase. And this gives you more freedom to structure the chase so that the very last scene is more climactic, more cinematic. In option one, where they're meeting a certain threshold of failures first, the player characters may win or lose the chase like halfway through, long before you get to the end of all the scenes that you had mapped out. Now, the question may arise here about the distance between the pursuers and the quarry. Uh, What if the quarry fails every single scene? Would would they eventually be, be in melee range at some point? I want to say no, but that's really your choice. Uh, Failures, really in my mind, in this chase mechanic that we're working on, failures aren't necessarily distance, just like hit points aren't necessarily damage. It's just an indicator of how well you're doing. Okay, so we've determined our victory or loss conditions. That's step two. Step three, we're going to look at gaining ground or success versus suffering setbacks or delays or failures. So you want to determine what in your chase is going to be deemed a failure. Now, failure is easy. Anything that might delay you. If you're chasing someone and they put an obstacle in your path that you don't get around, you bought your acrobatics check, whatever, that will delay you. If you stop to help a bystander that was injured by the quarry that you're chasing, that will delay you. If you cast a spell or make a ranged attack, any standard action counts against you unless it's a dash. Again, we'll get to that in a moment. So any standard action is a failure. I know this is a bit harsh. Bonus actions are okay, but this mechanic is definitely unique to the chase scene. But there has to be some kind of a drawback. If we're using the example of an urban chase through bustling city streets, then we can imagine that the heroes are pursuing their adversary quickly but carefully navigating the busy streets, and they can keep pace with their quarry for most of the time, but if they stop to cast a spell, like Hold Person, then that requires some extra effort on their part. And since we want the player's choices to make an impact on this, there will be a bit more of work to do on your part as the DM, to come up with situations that will force the players to make choices that actually matter, 
and not just see if they can succeed on an ability check every time. Okay, so earning a failure is easy. Gaining a success or gaining ground is not quite as easy. It's important to note why we need successes instead of just trying to make the other side fail first. Now, successes will offset the number of failures a character has incurred and also gives a very important narrative component to the chase, letting the players make a choice to try something that has a risk of failure and earning a success at a critical moment in the chase will make a good chase a great one, hopefully. Now, here's where I want to bring in what I was talking about earlier, about base speed. I was thinking about it a lot and how a character's base speed should factor into how well they do in the chase. Now, 30 feet per round is the standard base speed for most creatures. But if a creature is faster or slower, that should be reflected in the mechanics of the chase. For every 5 feet of movement over their base speed, that counts as one success per turn to a maximum number of turns equal to the number of increments, 5 foot increments, its base speed is over 30. Now, it sounds confusing. I apologize. I'm not so good with words. Let's just take the example. Spruce, the Wood Elf Monk, starting at 6th level, would have a base speed of 50 feet. So he has 4 increments of 5 foot movement over the typical 30 foot base movement speed. So in the chase, he would begin the chase with 1 automatic success. And by the 4th turn, he would have 4 successes just due to his base speed. Now, Gilly, the gnome, for example, would start with one failure because his base speed is 25. It's one increment less than the typical standard 30-foot base speed. Now, this is appropriate, I think, since Spruce is so damn fast. He's going to be a tough opponent in a chase. Gilly, not so much. So again, just to recap, Spruce would start the chase one automatic success on his first turn. On his second turn, he gets another one. Third and fourth turn, he gets another success on those turns as well. So that's four turns represent the four increments of five foot movement he has over base speed of 30 feet. So five times four is 20, 20 feet, 20 feet plus 30 feet is his base speed of 50 feet. Hopefully that makes sense. Now, when we're tallying up the successes versus failures as set out in step two, a creature's successes offset the equivalent number of failures. So a sixth level wood elf monk could, in the chase scene that we're looking at, the hypothetical chase scene, could suffer four failures and have a net number of failures of zero. A wizard could cast haste on a fellow party member. That creature's base speed, if it was 30, would then have an automatic success each turn for six turns while the wizard suffers one failure for having stopped to cast haste as an action. Now, it's important to dole out the successes each turn instead of all at once, since the quarry may escape if the victory conditions are met. If the quarry, let's say, meets these victory conditions by the time the wizard thinks, hey, I have haste, I'm going to cast that. So, those are some ways to earn successes. Be fast or... Know a wizard who knows haste. How else do you earn a success? Well, I want to keep the dash option in there, but I want to really tighten up on that allowance. A creature can dash as an action starting at 
a difficulty check athletics check of 10. And the difficulty rating goes up each time they dash by 2. So first time it's 10, then it's 12, then it's 14, and so on. So after two or three dashes, the chances that you can continually succeed after that become smaller and smaller. And if the player character fails by a certain margin, let's say 5 or 10, then it also counts as a failure, just to make things more exciting. Players can also use the help action to give advantage to someone. Perhaps most of the party is already falling behind, but one party member is close to meeting the victory conditions. One PC can use the help action for another player, incurring a failure for themselves, but increasing the chances that, say, that other PC's next dash will be a success. So this structure is fairly simple and easy to track. You're not messing around with individual creatures' movement speeds or distances. You're just making a tally or checkmark success or failure. Now, step four, this is the most crucial part, and this is where we need to get creative. Step four is map out your chase. Now, it's not literally map it out. We're just going to create your scenes. You've set the number of scenes that you want. Now we have to fill these in. I think this is where another element of player choice will be very prevalent. In the scenes you create, not every single scene needs to be analyzed and deciphered by your players, but we do want some of these scenes to force the players to make certain choices. So let's start by saying in this chase, and we're going to stick with the urban chase scene for now since it's classic, where the player characters are chasing a spy or an informant. There are going to be two scenes that are just alleys where the player characters can dash, although they can still try to dash through every other scene as well if they want. We'll incorporate a couple of obstacles. Maybe their quarry casts fog cloud or darkness to obscure themselves, or perhaps they startled a horse and the horse and the wagon that it's pulling are now careening towards the player characters who have to make a dexterity saving throw to get out of the way. Now having a couple obstacles like this is fine, but the problem with the obstacles in the Dungeon Master Guide is this. They only call for dice rolls. They only call for you to make a saving throw. So include a couple if you want, but let's take a look at this horse and wagon example again. Tell your players, this frightened animal is running through the crowd headed your way and is in danger of trampling innocent bystanders. And don't call for a dexterity saving throw. The player characters might just want to run around it, and if that's the case, then have them make the deck save. But what if the ranger or druid in the group wants to cast a spell to calm the horse down? That player casts a spell, takes a failure, and all the rest of the party can keep on running without the risk of incurring a failure due to a failed dexterity saving throw. Or how about their quarry mortally wounding an innocent bystander as he runs? Is the lawful good cleric in the party going to stop to heal them? Including scenes like this force the players to make a choice, not a tactical one, but a role-playing choice. So throw a couple of those in there. Maybe the quarry knocks over a lantern and a fire is starting and is in danger of spreading. One of the player characters may cast a spell to extinguish the flame, earning a failure, but also earning the satisfaction of saving some fictitious lives. And here's the crux. We want to have some scenes with risk-reward opportunities. The quarry, a known thief, just ran through a tavern where the player characters know that thief has some allies. Do they too run through and potentially draw the attention of hostiles, or do they play it safe and take the long way around? They might make it through the tavern unharmed if they can succeed on an acrobatics check to weave through the patrons, 
They might suffer more than one failure if they try to chase the thief out the back when he really went upstairs. Or the players see a potential shortcut through a warehouse that they know is owned by a local mobster. Do they earn a success at the risk of angering the mobster and dealing with that fallout later on? Or maybe the shortcut is through a temple and there's a particularly sacred observance taking place that very day. Are the paladins or clerics of the party willing to brazenly disrespect their deity or a friendly deity to gain ground? Or will they take the long way and suffer a failure? You can have similar scenes if the player characters are the quarry, only they would be the ones deciding whether to cast darkness or fog cloud. They would be the ones determining how to leave obstacles in their path. That approach, I think, is easier. There's a um, there's an example of an obstacle in the Dungeon Master's Guide where you run into, or you encounter a group of dogs fighting over a bone, and you have to, I think, make a dexterity save throw, or the dogs count as difficult terrain. I mean, how about you just describe that scene and let the players figure out, hey, maybe we should grab this bone from the dog and throw it behind us so they go chasing it, and that's an obstacle for the pursuers. Now, the person grabbing for that bone takes a failure, might also get rabies or something, I don't know. Now, I haven't spoken to initiative yet, and to be honest, I wouldn't really track it. The quarry acts first, and the pursuers act after. If you want, I think it would be perfectly fine to let the players choose who goes first each turn, or you could choose to have whichever player that has the highest number of successes be in the lead. So, that's my humble attempt at making a chase scene easier to do. What I hope this has done is given you a way to, one, track a chase scene with some ease, and two, given some of my ideas on how to turn simple obstacles and boring calls for saving throws into actual role-playing and tactical choices that your players have to make. If you have your own way of running chases that is you find easier or better, uh, let me know. Get in touch with us. On Facebook, Knights and Nerds Podcast. We are on Instagram at Twitter at Knights and Nerds, or you can email us, Knights and Nerds Podcast at gmail.com. And if you like this show, or even if you just tolerate it, tell your friends or leave us a review or rating wherever you listen to these kinds of shows. Okay, that's it for me. Let's let the outro music take it away because it's so epic. Like dun 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 dun